Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The UN's Climate Summit, COP26, is in its second week in Scotland with world leaders negotiating how best to reduce global warming. Meanwhile, the climate crisis continues to have a detrimental impact on our planet, and it also affects our health. Today, where we live, we talk about how the change in climate and extreme weather impacts public health, from asthma rates to cardiac conditions to transmission of vector-borne diseases. And we want to hear from you. How is your local community responding to the public health consequences of climate change? What do you want to hear from your leaders? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Joining us now on Zoom is a resident from Woodbridge, Kate Rosen. Kate, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. When we think about uh, doing our part, uh, when we think about our uh, climate crisis, uh, you're someone that uh, cycles not only uh, for enjoyment, but you're uh, you also using your bicycle to commute. How long have you been doing that, Kate? I started in 2019 um, with an electric cargo bike. And tell us about that decision. Um, I live in Woodbridge and I work in the city of New Haven, and I felt like the importance of being a good neighbor meant not bringing emissions into the city if I didn't need to. And having a bike that allows me to commute made that possible. Mm. And tell us, do a lot of people you know in your community also have that same mindset or are you one of the few? Uh, Based on the amount of bike traffic I see coming out of my town, I suspect that I am one of a few. Mm. Now you also have asthma. So how long have you had asthma? I've had asthma since I was three. I lived here in New Haven as a child and developed childhood asthma um, here in the city. Mm. Now, you mentioned New Haven, the American Lung Association gave all eight Connecticut counties an F grade for ozone pollution in its latest 2019 report. New Haven and Hartford are on the list of top 20 asthma capitals in the country. Again, that's according to a recent report from the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. So, you know, tell us about your asthma, Kate, and what have you noticed in in recent years? I've noticed that with the increase of uh, more hot days during the summer and the air quality, that I need to be more mindful of always carrying my rescue inhaler with me, um, especially when I'm bike commuting. And that I've observed during this past summer, especially that there were days I had to make the choice to take a car instead because the air quality was not safe to be able to bike into work. I understand that doctors are also seeing asthma being exacerbated by you know, seasonal allergies. This allergy season is also getting pushed out. And so when you think about treating your asthma, tell us about when you've noticed you know, when it's gotten worse and has that meant you've had to increase your medication? 
I definitely uh, noticed an uptick this summer when we were experiencing the smoke from the wildfires out west. Um, that had a big impact. And as far as being someone who lives with chronic asthma, it means changes to different medications, um, upping steroid support, and then, you know, obviously using the rescue inhaler more as needed. Mm. Uh, with us also on Zoom is Dr. David Hill, who's a pulmonologist, director of clinical research at Waterbury Pulmonary Associates, and he's a member of the National Board of Directors at the American Lung Association. Dr. Hill, welcome. Thank you. And so as we heard uh, Kate talk about her asthma and what she has experienced, what do you hear from your patients? So my patients sound a lot like Kate, um, particularly those hot, humid days when air quality is poor, they have trouble breathing, increased asthma symptoms. We see increased ER visits, increased emergency visits, need for rescue medications. Um, it's really a common story, something that when I first started practicing, we didn't hear a lot of. And now it's a routine that patients come in and say, I was fine until it was hot and humid. Hmm. You said when you first started practicing, you didn't hear it as much. So do you mind telling us about uh, when that was? And again, so, I've been a pulmonologist for about 25 years now, and definitely over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in complaints specifically related to heat, uh, humidity, and bad air quality. There's a report last year from Yale on climate change documenting 422 ER visits and 45 hospitalizations per year for heat stress in Connecticut. That was between 2007 and 2016. And so we were talking with Kate about her asthma, but I'm thinking about you know other conditions that pulmonologists are, are treating uh, and how those are getting worse. Dr. Hill, can you talk about that? Sure. So you mentioned heat. So hot weather alone has major health impacts. Um, what we see is when temperatures rise above 95 degrees Fahrenheit, there are significant increases in mortality from uh, cardiovascular disease and pulmonary disease, uh, or just elderly people who are living in conditions where they don't have access to air conditioning. Uh, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, this is one of many areas where the underprivileged are more affected by climate change than those who can afford better uh, living conditions. Mm. Uh, when we think about how climate change is exacerbating some of these uh, pre-existing health conditions, but what about the onset of new symptoms? When we think about someone who um, would be considered healthy, but you're also seeing the impact uh, on uh, when we think about air pollution on their health as well, Dr. Hill. So climate change and air pollution go hand in hand. Um, when it's hot, we have increased ozone formation and we have higher levels of, of particulate pollutions. And both ozone and particulates are associated with new onset asthma and with cardiovascular disease, uh, heart attack and stroke, uh, particularly in vulnerable people. So again, the elderly in terms of heart disease uh, and the very young in terms of new onset asthma. So anyone can be affected by bad air quality on those hot humid days when we have the red alert days where they tell you not to exercise outdoors those are serious unfortunately those tend to occur when high school and college athletes are exercising and there are also people who professionally can't avoid the outdoors construction workers and other people doing outdoor labor landscapers can't just decide that it's hot and humid and i'm going to take the day off 
Do you think that uh, policy leaders in our state are paying attention to the data, uh, to experts like yourself, Dr. Hill, uh, you know, at the top of the show, uh, I mentioned the, the medical journal Lancet issuing a code red for climate change and health. And so this is a real problem that can, you know, we can only expect can worsen unless uh, some real change happens. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think the policy leaders are listening, but they're not taking enough action. Uh, I would have probably been more optimistic before the pandemic uh, than I am now. I, I think what COVID-19 has illustrated to us is that even when mortality occurs in front of our eyes, there are competing economic forces that prevent people from doing what might be the scientifically correct thing to do. So this is something we really have to be bold and loud about talking about to policy leaders and making sure that they understand that spending money now will save money and lives down the road. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kate, I wanted you to weigh in on that because I, I started the show talking about how you're taking an active role. You're doing your part uh, to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but state policymakers also have a role to play. And, and one of the ways uh, in Connecticut that was discussed, but there was no action, and that was on the Transportation Climate Initiative. Can you talk about your response as a Connecticut resident? I find it deeply disappointing. The asthma rates in our cities, particularly those that affect children, are so high. I thought TCI should have been a slam dunk just to address those issues, in addition to all the other great benefits from that program. It would allow us to put money into our communities to fix roads, which would allow more people to bike, which would mean less emissions. So it's it's a big onion of, I think, great things, but our politicians need to develop the courage to get this passed. And you mentioned again, TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative. To recap for our listeners, you know, multi-state agreement that would have placed a cap on vehicle emissions by requiring gas and on-road diesel wholesalers to purchase pollution allowances, that money that Kate mentioned, investing in a cleaner, more equitable transportation system. And so, Kate, when we talk about um, the steps that uh, residents can play, policy leaders can play, do you feel like there is a shift in the conversation that you and people you know are having, thinking about climate change impacting health as well? I think the pandemic showed us that biking is a more accessible form of transportation, people were able to get out and bike. And I think supporting that with TCI money to be able to make biking safer for all users, these things all tie together. And so the more people that we can get out of cars and onto bikes and kids being able to bike safely in their communities, these have downstream impacts of reducing emissions. Uh, Dr. Hill, uh, with your work with the American Lung Association, but also being um, open and honest about what you're seeing among your patients and how uh, policy can help on a national level and in Connecticut, what would you like to see? So we, we have to move towards a greener economy where we're doing things that are taking us away from fossil fuels, both uh, for the electric grid purposes and for transportation in particular, combustion vehicles really contribute to that particulate and ozone pollution. Um, so, you know, the recent infrastructure bill that was passed has a victory in it with 
billions of dollars in funding for electric school buses and low emission school buses. That's one step in the right direction. Um, that transportation infrastructure, particularly vehicles that are going short routes needs to be electrified sooner rather than later. And uh, school buses, for example, not only burn fuels, but spend a lot of time idling and uh, waste money and contribute to air pollution when they're doing so. When we're talking about uh, demographics of people most uh, impacted, when we think about uh, underserved communities, uh, you know, they're not contributing to greenhouse gas emissions like other communities may uh, with people driving and other activities, but they end up uh, paying the price uh, for that air pollution. And, and you know, that can be frustrating uh, from a grassroots level, uh, Dr. Hill. It certainly can be, you know, our poorer communities live along high, highway corridors. So I-95 and 84, the housing alongside those roads is disproportionately exposed to pollution. In general, uh, the people who live closer to factories and power plants are lower income and minority communities that are disproportionately affected by this pollution. They have higher asthma rates. And on top of that, they have poor access to medical care. So it's a combination of things, more disease and less care uh, that really leads to a bad public health outcome. Uh, we've been putting in requests to speak to Governor Lamont. Uh, the last time he's been on the show was uh, this summer. And so uh, we hope to have him on soon. And what I think is unique about this program is our listeners are able to ask questions of our policymakers like the governor. And so if you want to hear Governor Lamont on the show, we encourage you also to contact his office uh, to answer uh, these questions. Um, so many that our residents have about our climate crisis and more. I wanted to share uh, something from Anthony um, as someone living in one of the asthma capitals. He posted this on our Where We Live page. Uh, he lives in Hartford. I'm concerned with the biggest infrastructure spending on the way, and the Connecticut DOT doesn't yet evaluate and rank their projects based on long-term emissions impact. Also hearing from the Department of Transportation that highway widening, which aka means congestion reduction, will reduce emissions. We know that long-term, these projects induce demand, increase sprawling development and driving trips, and overall increase emissions and tailpipe pollution. And so I think, again, this is something that we hear time and time again from um, activists, uh, Kate especially, um, you know, and is it frustrating, again, that we continue to hear that there are these projects in play that may not necessarily encourage people to drive less? It's true. Um, and I think this comes from our political leadership and our political will. We, I know that there are tough votes, but we really need to kind of focus on the longer term impacts on the state of Connecticut and the health of our children. Again, you can join us as we talk about a climate crisis impacting public health. The number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. I just want to take a, a quick call. Uh, Dave's calling in. Dave, did you have a question for uh, Dr. Hill? Thank you. Good morning, Lucy. Yes, I do. Um, I actually am a native of Orange and Woodbridge in my childhood, and my wife and I are looking to move back from where in Ohio, where I'm listening on the internet right now, um, in the next couple of years. So, I, my question for Dr. Hill is: We're looking maybe at living closer to the shore. Is there any kind of 
data that you know of as far as the air quality and particulates and so forth in the shoreline communities from, say, Milford out. And I know that Fairfield is, you know, is pretty bad for, for this, as opposed to inland. Thanks. Dr. So Hill, did one you have anything to say? Where, where we have difficulty is we don't have enough localized air quality monitoring to be able to break down that data and know specifically community to community. We, we have fairly good county level data, um, but investing in air quality monitoring to determine local effects would help answer that question better. Uh, Fairfield County in particular has some of the worst air quality in the country between the combination of the highway corridor and the prevailing winds. It wouldn't stop me. I'm a Connecticut native. It wouldn't stop me from living in Connecticut or Fairfield. Uh, it would make me think about how close to the highways I live. And you have to be aware of air quality and pay attention when the healthcare authorities say, don't exercise outdoors and, and try to avoid those situations. Unfortunately, if we don't take action, the number of days where the air quality is bad is going to increase substantially. Estimates of, you know, a 65% increase in the next 25 years if we don't act on climate. And Dave, on the phone, uh, stay with us. Coming up soon on Where We Live, we're going to hear from the co-chair of the Governor's Council on Climate Change Science and Technology Working Group, who can help um, probably answer more of your question as well uh, here on the show. I want to thank uh, Dr. Again, Dr. David Hill for joining us, Director of Clinical Research at Waterbury Pulmonary Associates, a member of the National Board of Directors of the American Lung Association. Dr. Hill, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Lucy. And Kate Rosen, thank you for joining us, a resident in Woodbridge. We appreciate your perspective, Kate. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up on Where We Live, we're going to talk about how heat affects brain health. And later, we hear from a public advocacy group pushing policymakers in our state to act on climate change. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We know climate change has drastic impacts on our planet 
in our biodiversity. Today, we're talking about how climate change also affects public health. My next guest was co-chair of the Governor's Council on Climate Change, the Science and Technology Working Group. Uh, the, among its 2020 findings, you know, average temperatures in Connecticut could increase by five degrees uh, Fahrenheit by 2050 compared to the 1970 to 99 baseline with, with hot weather expected to shift toward more frequent and higher temperature events. Hot temperatures affect our brain health, something that Susan Messino has researched as a neuroscientist. She joins us now. She's professor of applied science at Trinity College. Susan, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. So uh, you've been doing this research for some time, studying the human brain to learn how just even small increases in temperature impact the brain. So tell us about your findings. Yeah, so when I was in graduate school, I was very interested in um, evolution and what were all the kind of stresses that our cells faced during evolution. And the work I did um, was in behavior and sensory processing, but also very detailed studies in brain slices, looking at how small changes in temperature changed brain activity. So a small change would allow the activity to uh, be altered and then come back. A little bit bigger change would cause a permanent alteration in brain activity. Now that was just a slice in a dish, and I've come back to looking more at behavior and really tried to look at how we can protect our brain health and protect our resilience in the face of these stresses. And that's why I've gotten into um, environmental issues and climate change and really a focus on nature and brain health. So talk more about that. I know you teach a course uh, titled Nature and Brain Health. Yeah, um, one of the things I've really committed to um, at Trinity is integrating this into my scholarship and my teaching to try and tell my students how to be curators of their brain health and their health, because fundamentally, we need our healthy brains and we need healthy ecosystems in order to survive. And um, these are complex systems um, that are designed to be resilient but they can only take so much stress. So um, one way that we can both benefit the planet, benefit our communities, benefit our own health, is make sure that we keep these natural areas, cool areas, clean water. And to follow up on um, what Dr. Hill was talking about, these are ways that we can combat air pollution. Um, there's a lot of common solutions to these complex problems, and that's what we tried to focus on in the um, science and technology working group. What are common solutions that will help the climate and help our health? Before we get into those solutions, uh, Michael from Ashford had a question related to heat. Michael, did you want to ask the professor? Hi, sure. Um, when I was a young man, um, I was a distance runner and uh, I tended to do well in, in um, you know, if a tent, let's say a 10k road race if, if it was above 90 de degrees i knew i would be able to beat people who i did not ordinarily beat and and i believe that that i did well in heat because i trained in heat and and i think that's true for young people i'm i'm old now and i find that a 90 de degree day really you know, knocks me flat. 
Um, but I, I wonder if there's some value to the point of view that you need to, to become acclimated to these high temp days precisely because, you know, your body will acclimate. You'll sweat sooner and more rapidly. You just need to stay hydrated and, and uh, monitor your, your, uh, your body. Uh, Susan, did you want to respond to Michael? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And um, just to relate your experience of, you know, it being more challenging for you now, um, you know, physiology is dynamic and there are tipping points. So there may be a, your tipping point may be different now than it was when you were younger. Uh, when we were talking about uh, you know, exposure to heat, you know what uh, studies have found in linking, um, you know, with brain health, thinking about depression and violence. Can you talk about that flip side too, Susan? Yeah, there's um, definitely research that increased heat stress increases crime, increases violence, um, domestic abuse, and just to also relate back to the previous conversation on air pollution. Um, higher air pollution is strongly associated with depression. Um, so there's a number of kind of negative effects on the brain of increased air pollution and increased um, heat stress, particularly the kind of acute heat stress that happens in people that aren't acclimated. So we were talking earlier about some solutions uh, when we think about um, our increasing uh, temperatures as well as brain health. And so talk through with us, you know, some of the solutions that, that you've uh, worked on with your students and also in your research. When we look at even uh, the woods around us. Sure. Um, so I want to refer briefly to the um, the strategy that we applied at the science and technology working group um, multi-solving, which means you're looking for solutions that would have long-term benefits for the climate, but would also have benefits immediately, for example, for your health. And some of the solutions that would have benefits for both and also for biodiversity would be a focus on um, green infrastructure, for example. The research shows that it's underutilized and I think a lot of engineers are used to kind of hardscaping things um, and because they can calculate exactly um, what the flow will be, et cetera. But some green infrastructure takes some time to develop. And I think we need to really think about how we can uh, best integrate green infrastructure and how we can protect the green infrastructure that we have. For example, on our river and stream corridors, the big trees that grow there in the natural buffer helps to clean our water, but also is an incredible stabilizer um, when a flood comes. So, um, and that also provides a beautiful pool area that people can seek relief um, from air pollution and from heat stress. So if we try and work with these natural systems that exist right now and protect them strongly, and also try and integrate more green infrastructure in natural areas, we can really uh, provide a significant buffering of these negative effects. Mm. And what about urban forests, Susan? Yeah, so that's an interesting um, point because I think urban forests are critical 
um, both for this heat and air pollution and really for mental health, which has been a, um, a real focus of mine recently. Um, there's, um, we really have serious issues with mental health and particularly in children. And this kind of you know, common solution can also really benefit mental health. And I know there's a lot of um, discussion about more parks and green spaces in uh, compromised communities. But the research shows that woods are actually more beneficial in terms of um, teenagers' emotional regulation and cognitive performance. There was just a recent study in the UK saying that woods are more important. And I think that uh, the importance of urban forests is um, also is stepping stones for species as they need to move across the landscape and migrate um, during a changing climate. So we need to think about our landscape, a strategic plan on our landscape, that we have these natural areas in urban areas that connect out to our larger landscapes. And there's so many um, benefits of that. You're hearing Susan Massino here on Where We Live, professor of applied science at Trinity College. She was also co-chair of the Governor's Council on Climate Change, the Science and Technology Working Group. Uh, before I ask you more about some of those findings from that 2020 report, you know, I had introduced you as a neuroscientist and you were talking about research you started back in the 90s. Did you ever think that uh, you'd be thinking about uh, your work in um, the context of, of climate change and finding solutions, Susan? Um, actually, I, I really never did. I was very focused as a neuroscientist in trying to understand the brain from a variety of perspectives. But what I started to realize um, as I moved on in my career is that we, you know, medicine is amazing and we've discovered so much, but uh, neurological problems are very challenging and we don't have cures or good solutions for most of them. And one of the most powerful ways to prevent mental illness and neurological problems is lifestyle changes, lifestyle preventative, first do no harm, uh, let food be thy medicine, social support, physiological support for our bodies and our brains. And what I realized is there are a lot of ways that we can do that that are also essential to helping the planet right now which is why I think this intersection of climate and biodiversity and health is so powerful and so important. Um, and I've, one of the issues I think is that scientists even are sort of divided into silos and it's been difficult to sort of put this puzzle together. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we think about climate change and uh, public health. Uh, uh, this work that you did on the Science and Technology Working Group for the Governor's Council on Climate Change, can you talk about some of the key findings? We heard from a, a caller earlier that wants to move to Connecticut's shore. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm maybe I'm in the minority and sense of when I think about climate change and some of the uh, impacts will be seen in the near future. I don't think I want to be on the shoreline, Susan. Well, our report said that in the you know near term, there's probably about 20 inches of sea level rise happening, and there will be more uh, frequent storms, um, perhaps an episode like Sandy, maybe every five to 10 years. So there are definitely weather and you know sea level impacts that will be happening. Um, what I tried to focus on in 
um, part of the working group report are some really sort of positive uh, changes that we can make because we can't fix, no matter what we do in Connecticut, we're, we're going to do our best, but we can't fix the entire planet. So we have to think about how to keep our communities healthy. And some of these sort of what we call multi-solving solutions are the things that we're talking about today. People powered and public transportation, um, green infrastructure, local food systems, local resource systems, um, energy efficiency um, and safer um, homes that don't ca themselves cause health, health problems, clean energy. And as I mentioned before, a strategic plan for our landscape that protects our clean water and protects an intact network of nature that we all need to survive. So these are really the building blocks of a plan that protects each of us and protects our community. And they're really simple. In some cases, we'll save money by doing this. And I just want to echo what um, Dr. Hill said is that there's um, sometimes the science gets uh, sidelined by other, by other interests. And it's a challenge to try and get common sense solutions um, affected. You know, I asked our previous guests, you know, what they'd like to see Connecticut policymakers do in relation to um, some of these um, uh, potential plans uh, to mitigate uh, as our uh, climate continues to warm. And, and so, Susan, what do you want to see? What uh, next steps from our leaders? So I'm going to focus on two things. Number one is the governor's uh, working group recommended taking it recommended taking burning biomass out of class one renewable like solar so we always talk about not burning fossil fuels but burning wood at the smokestack is worse than burning coal and yet we subsidize it like solar and right now the uh state is considering counting burning wood as zero carbon and this issue of burning wood um is a problem internationally. And there's a lot of money in the infrastructure bill to do it and to actually convert coal plants into burning wood. It's not a win for the climate or for our health um, or for our ecosystems to start shoving trees into our energy system. And the other thing I would say is it's so critical right now to protect this street strategic network of clean water and nature. Even the most precious pieces of our landscape have no special protection. Our headwaters, our old growth forests, they have no special protection. It would be a stroke of a pen to say that we need to take care of our public land and treat it like mini national parks for all the climate and biodiversity and health benefits they offer and for the long-term public good. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. We're hearing from Susan Messino, Professor of Applied Science at Trinity College. Uh, Carol's calling in from Columbia. Carol, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, you came out to visit me in 2007. I have the double envelope solar out. Oh, yeah. That was way back. <laughs> explain, way to our back. Listener, explain to our listeners about the property that, that you and your husband built. We have a double envelope solar house, which is a house inside a house. 
we don't need a furnace to keep it warm in the winter, and it cools itself quite efficiently during the summer. We make our own electricity and our own domestic hot water, which all of which cut down significantly in the pollution that goes into the atmosphere. Uh, also, housing is a long-term investment. So every solar house that goes up means for the next probably 100 years or more, these homes will keep pollution out of the atmosphere. Carol, this was again, about, we talked in a long time ago in 2007, and you built your house uh, prior to that. Uh, do you feel like you were ahead of the curve mm-hmm. here? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And just now people are starting to get interested in uh, building alternative structures, but not only homes, but schools, office buildings, uh, federal buildings. You can save a horrendous amount of money and uh, save the atmosphere at the same time and be very, very comfortable. These homes are very comfortable. Well, thank you, Carol, you for calling the swing in. Of heat. <laughs> it was okay, good to hear well, from you I'm again. I'm on it, so when it's oh. done, I'll send you a copy. Well, thank you. We may have you back on the show, uh, Carol, from Columbia, Connecticut. Uh, Susan, did you want to respond to what Carol shared? Uh, again, again, residents are taking it upon themselves to think about ways um, their actions uh, can help our planet. Yes, I would love to respond to that because one of the other things that we highlighted in our report is that community-based local action is essential to addressing climate change. And there was a big kind of meta-study done in Europe about that called Ecolease. And um, there's also been reports, um, other reports. So I would really encourage people, uh, don't wait for the state to take action. Do what you can in your community now in your house. Um, We need distributed processing on this system. Again, that's Susan Messino, professor of applied science at Trinity College, and she was co-chair of the Governor's Council on Climate Change, the Science and Technology Working Group. We'll be sure to to share that report on our website, and we'll try to tweet it out as well. Susan, thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you very much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from the Connecticut Citizen Action Group about what actions they want to see from policymakers like the governor to confront climate change. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Author and Marine veteran Phil Clyde's works have described that sometimes dissonant or disconnected public understanding about America's wars and its veterans. Uh, tomorrow, where we live, the Fairfield University MFA professor joins us to reflect on how 
public perceptions have shifted in recent months. Have you read Phil Cly's books? His latest is Missionaries, That Conversation Tomorrow. Now, today we've been talking about how climate change has wide-ranging impacts on public health. That's especially true for lower-income neighborhoods, for residents who have chronic health conditions or who are uninsured, and for people who experience homelessness. My next guest is the executive director of Connecticut Citizen Action Group. Tom Swan joins us now on Zoom. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. Now, your group is working with the Sierra Club on a climate awareness campaign. Part of that is asking the governor to be more aggressive with efforts. So tell us about the demands both groups recently sent to the governor. So um, we just delivered to the governor's office over 3,000 postcards um, and met with one of his staff members where we outlined 20 administrative actions that we felt that he should take in furtherance of um, stopping climate change. Amongst those that were included was stopping the Killingly Power Plant. And while it wasn't a governor that afternoon, um, the regional grid, um, ISO, announced that they were uh, recommending to the Federal Energy um, Commission that um, that no longer be included in the need for New England, effectively, or having the potential to effectively kill the plant so a victory. And the administration had been pressuring ISO, but in addition to that, we called for greater use of renewables and efficiency in state buildings, uh, move to purchase 100% electric vehicles, um, make sure to deploy electric vehicle chargers at all state parks, highway rest stops, state buildings, um, went through with 20 things that he could do without any action by the legislature. Um, we have heard back from the commissioner of DEEP, and we look forward to following up with her to um, see what can actually get done between now and the, uh, and the beginning of the legislative session. You know, I mentioned uh, lower income uh, neighborhoods uh, that bear the brunt of when we think about these uh, impacts uh, from climate change. Tell me about your work on Senate Bill 356 and, and how that will protect the health of uh, lower income communities. It's a bill we're really excited about and Senator Rick Lopes really took the charge and led on this. What has been found um, since we started to run state energy efficiency programs is that many um, low-income residents weren't eligible for efficiency upgrades at all because when people went to check out their houses, they had health risks like lead, asbestos, um, mold. And, you know, the, the workers they had couldn't go about doing it. So what we finally did at DEEP is um, enthusiastically implementing it at this time, um, we believe, um, is pass legislation that dedicated $14 million to not only allow for these folks to become eligible for efficiency, but to address the underlying um, health issues that are related to it. So the, their housing will no longer have lead or asbestos, and that will significantly improve people's health while being good for the environment and also creating good paying jobs for, um, for a lot of our residents. Um, one of our coalition partners, um, Energy Efficiency Solutions, 
has been doing a great job training people from many of these communities to be able to go in and do the efficiency and all. And we think that with an investment in workforce development and all around here, we can both um, have one of the most effective means to counter climate change and energy usage, but really create some excellent paying jobs uh, that will that uh, will address not just the climate, but also the health issues, as you mentioned. You're hearing Tom Swan here on the show, Executive Director of the Connecticut Citizen Action Group. Um, there's also something else that your group's working on. When we think about top health insurers, Cigna and Aetna, holding $24 billion in coal, oil, and gas investments. And so you're also uh, working on asking them to divest. Talk about that with us. So, yeah, with the health insurers, it's unconscionable to us that they would actually be investing in fossil fuels. Um, if they're really about people's health, why are they uh, trying to make money off of an industry that has been about um, really undermining and harming people and their health? The um, We did a report based upon the 2017 um, California Insurance Department that showed just how much money these companies had to disclose how much money they had within fossil fuels. Um, we're hopeful, um, particularly with CVS, we had an encouraging meeting that we met with most of them. Um, we're hopeful that they will be coming out with some policies that are at least interim steps to address this. And it's also only in the self-interest not only of their policyholders and health, but also of their shareholders. Um, fossil fuels have um, not done nearly as well as uh, other investments over the last five to seven years, and the outlook for them continue to not look good. Um, so we think that it's only in these companies' self-interest, along with their policyholders, to, um, to no longer be invested in fossil fuels. What, if, if I could just build mm-hmm. off that and go sure. sort of a little further or not. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. Just a few minutes left. Okay. Um, so the property casualty insurers um, in some ways are um, doubly bad. Um, I totally uh, stick by my comments about health insurers, but property casualty insurers is also underwrite many of these projects, including investing money in those. And there are billions and billions of dollars. Yesterday, the Hartford actually took some small steps in terms of announcing that they were exiting coal a year faster than they had pledged. And they're ahead of most of Connecticut's insurers on that, along with setting up a green fund that we're interested in hearing more of the details of what that's doing. But there was a report card released last week and the company that was at the absolute bottom of any insurers across the world was Travelers for a failure to have any policies on investment and underwriting. And two weeks ago, the Washington Post had an article about the way that um, coal was probably going to um, end up going by the wayside is because of the difficulty of getting insurance. And this campaign we're working on is being coordinated with a lot of people who cut their teeth on anti-apartheid and divestment stuff in the 70s and 80s. And um, 
it's really exciting the momentum that we're seeing, whether it's the small steps that the Hartford took yesterday or some of the internet, big international um, insurers that have been, been taking some pretty bold steps mm-hmm. around Glasgow. Um, it's going to take all these avenues for us to win on climate change and going stopping the money pipeline in order to ensure our future is a big deal to us. And we're really excited about this work. Uh, getting back to the health insurers, we did reach out to both Cigna and Aetna and uh, producer Sujata Srinivasan uh, did not hear back from Cigna and Aetna declined to be on the show. Uh, we're almost out of time, Tom, but I, we did want to ask you that the CDC recently awarded a five-year, $1.5 million grant to the Connecticut Department of Public Health to identify impacts of climate change in communities, come up with some solutions. And so um, if you wanted to name what one one or two of the focus uh, what what they should be focusing on uh, in the the time that we have left. So I think we need to look at the um, look at multi-source um, pollutions in um, particularly frontline communities. And there was an environmental justice bill that passed in New Jersey. We're looking to pass something like that here. But the study to look at, you know, how having a variety of power plants, factories, waste sites in different communities, how that has a um, cumulative impact on many of the residents living there and particularly young people. Well, I want to thank Tom Swan for coming on the show today, Executive Director of the Connecticut Citizen Action Group. A lot to chew on, uh, Tom, uh, but important priorities, and we look forward to hearing some updates uh, in the the coming months. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. You get a lot in the show. Have a great day. <laughs> I work with a good team, Tom. Thank you. Today's show produced by Sujatra Srinivasan with help from Abhi Levine. Katie Pelico was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You know, you can listen to Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And we hope you join us tomorrow for that conversation with author Phil Clyde. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>